You're listening to Coaching Skills for Leaders. This is episode 13, recorded on November 12th, 2011. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to Coaching Skills for Leaders. My name is Dave Stahoviak. This is the show for leaders who want to develop their coaching skills so they can influence the success of others, their organization, and themselves. Whether you're a seasoned leader or you're leading people for the first time, improving your coaching skills will drive your success and most importantly, the success of others. This week's topic is how culture affects coaching. Last week, we looked at how courage can help us to become more effective in our coaching and the importance of having courage. And that actually dovetails perfectly into this week's topic on culture. And the reason is that a lot of times the things that stop us from being courageous as leaders is organizational culture. And whether we recognize it or not, organizational culture has a tremendous impact on how we interact, the kinds of conversations we have, how we coach people. And so although this isn't a a series of shows on organizational behavior, Leaders need to have an understanding of how culture and organizational dynamics and behavior affect their relationships in order to be as effective at developing people. And so in order to really do justice to this topic, I have brought back uh, my favorite guest, uh, my wife, and also uh, a professor of business at Vanguard University and the president of our firm. Dr. Bonnie Stahoviak, who has studied this organizational culture in detail. And so I'm so glad to have you back. Well, thanks for having me back. I am glad to have traveled all the way over from across the hall. Hey, you know, anytime you can go across the hall to uh, get to work, it's a great thing. And so I'm uh, glad to have you back here again. And I thought we'd start off by spending a few moments here just talking about what culture is and what we mean by strong and weak cultures. And so uh, where should we start here? Well, one of the things when we talk about culture that, that will often come up is people will talk about, well, I work for a company that has a really strong culture. And mm. actually in the literature, in the research, there are a lot of different definitions of what a culture is. And there's a lot of different ways of looking at it in today's episode. I'm sure we're only going to skim the surface, but when people talk about a strong or a weak culture, they don't mean a good or a bad culture. When researchers talk about that, when you go and look at studies, When they talk about the strength of it, it's kind of, well, I'm not a coffee drinker, but to me, it reminds me of how strong are weak coffees, how much has it permeated the organization? How much has Ah. the culture uh, sort of infused itself throughout the entire company? Or is it more of a weak culture that you might see different pockets and different departments and it doesn't really show the characteristics as strongly? It's not, is it good or bad? It's how, how strongly or weekly do the the characteristics show up? How consistently? And I see here that you've written down just uh, one of the definitions of a strong culture is that it's consistent throughout most of the organization and thus has a really strong impact on individuals and the types Mm -hmm. of ways they interact. And then, of course, weak culture would be the opposite. So they don't have as much of a strong impact on members because they're inconsistent. So it doesn't mean that it's not effective. It's just that it doesn't have as much as much um, effect on the behaviors, the daily behaviors of each individual in the organization. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. And as I think about myself as a coach, as I've gone and coached people, I can't really do that well without exploring the culture with which in which they operate. 
And as you said, Dave, I cannot even even wrap my head around how much culture the culture at the places where we work affect us. I have found myself having my behavior to be more aggressive than I might normally be working in a very aggressive culture. And then of course, feeling guilty for that and having my friends say, you work in a place where that gets rewarded. And if you want to get things done, which my personality is very much one that likes to see things moving forward, see progress, see results. And so I don't necessarily like that about myself. I don't like that that has brought out maybe my not the greatest characteristics of me. But certainly, I think that as we've gone and done reading and studied about culture, you and I, Dave, it doesn't have to really be about guilt as much as just kind of that self-reflection of we really are impacted when we are in environments. And if we're going to be effective coaches, we have to recognize the people we are coaching are going to be equally influenced in the organizations that they work in as well. And not the organization as a whole, because different organizations can have really different cultures in the various departments as well. I've been amazed at how much just my behavior is affected by different organizational cultures that I'm involved with, with organizations I've partnered with, with our clients. Depending on the culture of that organization, I do notice this because we spent a lot of time studying this over the years, is how much my behavior is affected and changed. If things I would say in one uh, situation with one organization and be very uh, more assertive or even aggressive about, I might not ever say that in a different organization, just depending on what kind of the cultural Mm -hmm. norms are. So let's define culture and what culture is. As I mentioned, the culture has a lot of different definitions from a lot of different researchers. One of the prominent ones is shine, and that's spelled... S C H E I N E I N. Yeah. Edgar Edgar Schein is the author and his seminal book is Making Sense of the Organization. And I believe it's in its third or fourth edition now. And he looks at culture through that that book. So his definition is that culture is a pattern of shared basic assumptions that were learned by a group as it solved its problems of external adapt adaptation and internal integration that have worked well enough to be considered valid and therefore to be taught to new members as the correct way to perceive, think, and feel in relation to those problems. So two key themes come out of his rather lengthy definition. Two key themes. One is that it's this shared basic assumptions. And a second big key theme is that we're being taught, not necessarily in our formal orientation programs by any means, we're being taught a lot more subtly, but strongly as well, how to perceive, think, and feel in relation to the problems that we're both solving internally, and then also with our customers, whoever we're serving. And taught really is an interesting word here for me that uh, that, uh, Edgar Schein uses, because like you said, Bonnie, it's not usually... Culture is not what you learn in your organization's orientation program when you show up the first day of work. That almost is never the full picture of what culture is. Culture is what you learn from the people around you in the organization as you become associated with it and as you understand the dynamics. And it tends to be the types of things that you hear, uh, particularly if you're entering an organization and after you've gone through orientation and been there for a couple days or weeks, where you will say something to someone else like, oh, I heard that this is how we do this here, or this is the policy or procedure, and someone says to you, no, that's not how we really do it. Mm-hmm. That's where the real organizational culture, quote unquote, teaching really comes in is, here's what we really do. 
And there's a few lenses to look through that on. And Shine actually uses uh, three different lenses that we can look at through culture and how to really understand culture. Because there's so many aspects of it. But if we can if we can look through it through these three lenses, it gives us a really good picture of what culture is. It can be really, really difficult to assess a culture. And it doesn't matter if you're looking at it as an innocent bystander. As Dave mentioned, you're brand new. You don't have any baggage under your belt in terms of what's going on in the organization. Or if you are so close to the culture, you oftentimes actually can't see it yourself because you're so ingrained in it. So these three lenses that we're going to talk about now, they help us see culture. They help us. They're indicators of culture. But we all have to recognize that if we're too close or too distant, we can really misunderstand what's going on. This is truly an area of human behavior that is incredibly complex because individual people are complex enough as it is. But you get a group of us together and there can be a lot going on. So on the very surface level, Shine defines for us what he calls artifacts. And we think of ourselves now as anthropologists and, you know, we're going out there and we're going out and studying, you know, a group of people and we're looking at artifacts. Those are things that we can see right in front of our faces. So we can notice, you know, you go into someone's office We kind of assume we can tell a lot about their personality. You know, do they have any pictures of family or loved ones on their desk or dogs or cats? You know, what kind of person is this? What are the colors that they've chosen to use if they had any sense of of color as well? And is it more of a playful thing where we see Dave in his office here in his home office has a jazz band, sort of a brass discolored brass band and so you might go oh maybe he likes music you know and and then he's got you know the the podcasting studios in his office so gee he must be really really technical and he must record things he must be pretty techy too because he's got not one but two monitors in your two different computers and so the artifacts are the things we can readily see and observe and I just have a story as far as artifacts go and culture goes of my growing up and it is an example for me of how you think that you can see something when you're really close to it. You're in a culture. You think you can see it, but you're oftentimes wrong. And that has to do with my family. Of course, family is oftentimes where we had our first experience with cultures. And so for myself, we had a sort of a tradition, a habit uh, that I had no idea was incredibly unusual until, until I started in my high school years going to other people's families and visiting other family dinners. So Dave, here is what family dinners looked like to us. My mom was not and still is not much of a cook. And so we would frequently go out to eat. And this most of the time would be, you know, fast food. I grew up as a fast food baby. (laughs) And so now I know. (laughs) Yes. And then but there also was down in Oceanside where I grew up, there was this restaurant, which I'm sad to report is no longer there called Borelli's. And Borelli's was this really neat family Italian restaurant. It was probably mid-scale as far as things go. And our family would go there, gosh, probably two or three times a week. And as I look back now, knowing what I know now about quote-unquote normal families, we were definitely not a normal family. So here are our artifacts that, Dave, if you had been there at another table watching us, you would have seen. You would have seen four people, my mom, my dad, my brother, and I. You would see us walk in, each one of us carrying at least one book. 
And we all would sit there throughout the entire meal and not speak to each other at all, but read our books. Uh-huh. And the, the only dialogue that happened was with whoever the server was that came over to take our order. And that was it. And that's how I grew up. And to me, I was so close to that culture that I didn't recognize that that wasn't how families normally would behave at dinner, that we might have seemed unusual to other people who were dining in that establishment. So, I mean, certainly now I'll read if I'm out to eat by myself, <laughs> I'll, I'll read, but I would never, you know, sit with a group of four people and, and not speak to each other. And so a lot of people, if they observed those artifacts of our family, Dave, what would be some of the assumptions people would make about us as a family? If they just saw family of four, all reading, not speaking to each other, what, what would be some assumptions that we might make as observers of this family? I mean, it might be hard for you to answer this question because you know this family, but, but give it your best shot. Well, I, the, the ab- casual observation would be they don't like each other, they're antisocial, they, maybe they like to read, they're awkward, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so in, in my terms of my relationship growing up with my family, we did like each other. We didn't have you know huge conflict in the family. And so there would be some disconnects between what was actually true about the culture and what was being possibly perceived by those artifacts. So Dave, I know you're going to talk a little bit now about some of the other indicators of culture that Edgar shines. So I just mentioned artifacts. And now we're going to go on to a couple other lenses we can use to look at culture. The second lens that he suggests we look at is espoused beliefs and values. So those are the types of things as far as what what an organization says or leaders of an organization say that is really important about that organization. And it is um, sometimes that's written down, sometimes that's repeated in language a lot. I used to work for an organization that was very big on uh, actually coaching. And so that's one of the reasons I got experience early in my career with coaching is that it was an espoused value in the organization that you got coached and you also got feedback. It was very unusual that during a day at work, you didn't get tough feedback on a regular basis on your performance, uh, both certainly good, but also negative feedback too and constructive feedback. And that was an espoused value of the organization. And it was a value that was taken to heart. And so Things like giving people regular coaching and feedback became not only part of the organization's culture, but really were expected. And so coaching and developing people was something that was very much a part of everyday activities. So the way I would interact with people in that environment, and now looking back and working with some of the client organizations we work with now, I would approach our clients in very different ways, depending on their culture, because in that environment, that was very open and it was encouraged. So I would be coaching right away almost when I connect with somebody, even someone I didn't know very well in the organization, because I knew that they shared that espoused value, or at least an understanding of that value, whereas another organization may not have that value. So part of it is just what the organization espouses and being present to that as a leader, whether you're in that organization or if you're outside that organization working with someone in a different organization of understanding that value. And if you can understand that espoused value, you can connect better with folks and fit better into that culture. And of course, what we say, those things that we espouse, do not always align with what we do. <laughs> and <laughs> <It's true. laughs> that unfortunately has been more of my experience than the type of thing that you described where there is a connection between what we say is important and what we do. And so as leaders, 
we need to be very cognizant, both within a potential for ourselves to be full of hypocrisy as we say things and then behave differently or allow reward other kinds of behaviors. And then we also need to recognize that in organizations, this is actually pretty easy to do, especially because our culture tends to have such a fear of conflict and of giving real candid feedback Mm -hmm. that we're not able to shape things over time to avoid having that kind of disconnect between what we say and what we do. And case in point to what you just said, I met with a client organization this week that espouses the value of entrepreneurship within their organization. And if people making uh, tough, making their own decisions, being empowered to make their own decisions, going out on a limb and, and really doing things n- new and creatively, and yet that's one of the biggest things that their organization is struggling with is people aren't stepping out and taking the time to make tough decisions or feeling like they can, they're going to be acknowledged if they do that and rewarded if they do that. And so that's where there's a disconnect between the espoused values of the organization and what's really going on. And so that's something that I'm, I'm actually talking with them about is what can, what can you do to raise your awareness about that and where the disconnect is so that you can actually coach and develop people more effectively. And the third lens that we can look at as an indicator of culture kind of connects with the other two, and those are the underlying assumptions. So with artifacts, we know those are things we could readily see and observe without even really knowing much of anything. Espoused beliefs and values, what we say is important to us, what we value. And then the underlying assumption are all of the whys behind what we do. So why is this important? So in your terms of the example that you use, Dave, Why is it important that entrepreneurship, yeah, we think it's valued because we say that it is, but why are people being rewarded and in what ways are they being rewarded for not being entrepreneurial or perhaps being punished for actually stepping out and taking those kinds of risks? So the underlying assumptions are the hardest to see both from Mm -hmm. a distance as well as when you're so close to them. They are, and they're particularly hard to see when you are embedded in it. And I have also worked for an organization that had a espoused value of customer service and really taking care of customers well. But the underlying assumption when you really got down into it was that customers came second to policy. And so whenever there was a conflict between what a customer, uh, what was going to be best for a customer and what the policy and procedures were of the organization, the, the real why, the, under, the underlying assumption was that the, the policies are going to be followed first. And that's something that I couldn't even see and realize until I actually left that organization, went to work for a different organization, is I looked back and I realized, wow, we really, although we espoused one thing, the underlying kind of what was really going on was very, very different than what the organization was saying. As a leader, it's disappointing to me when I step away and that's when I can see it because I want to be able to see it better. I want to avoid the hypocrisy for myself as a leader. I don't want to be saying one thing and doing another, reinforcing mm-hmm. another. Sure. And then I want to be more effective at exploring where there may be those lack of connections. And so one of the tools, Dave, that I have found really useful is a super simple one. And that is a great book that was written by Patrick Lencioni. And he wrote, well, actually he's written a number of wonderful books, but the one I'm thinking of right now is called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And you literally could read The Five Dysfunctions of a Team in I think a couple of hours. I mean, it's not a lengthy book. And the tool that I use more than anything from that book is in the very back. 
he has a little assessment. I don't think it's more than a page or two mm-hmm. asking questions about your team that, that go back and filter back to, are you behaving in a way that would support any of these five dysfunctions, five common dysfunctions of a team? And anytime I've led a team in the past, you're setting up your goals, you're setting up what your norms are going to be as you work. What do you value? What's your mission? But to be able to kind of have a check-in and say, how are we doing as a team? Are we succumbing to any of these temptations of a team, dysfunctions of a team, excuse me? And so that's just a real simple tool to have dialogue. And that's just one of many. There are lots of different kinds of instruments or assessments, all the way from the very expensive where you actually bring in outside consultants and do entire you know, diagnostics on the organization as a whole, 360 degree feedback tools and such. But this is just a simple page out of a book that you literally could do on a whiteboard. Or you could have people actually I think in the past have had people do it anonymously. And then the tallies I have communicated over a whiteboard. I mean, it's that simple. But the in the interest of being able to explore that cultural dynamic better and see where those disconnects are. And one of the kind of things with culture to keep in mind is that when you're in it, there's always parts of it you're not going to be able to see, regardless of how good a job you do of doing assessments and and looking at at different data points. So that's something really to know as as someone who's leading others is that you, your decisions are affected by culture, their decisions are affected by culture, and the more you can start to see where those influences are, the more effective you'll be at helping align with the culture of your organization and the culture that the people you work with are connected with and being able to get even more effective results. And not only can we sometimes not see it, Dave, sometimes we can't change it. <laughs> Many of the authors, and I believe Shine has mentioned this a number of times in his book as well, we can observe it. We can kind of learn how to interact within it. Mm-hmm. It can be incredibly challenging, and some authors even advocate impossible to actually change a culture. It is what it is. And I think that that's a, a key point, Bonnie, because... If you're spending your time as a leader trying to coach people to change and 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 work around a culture that is not going to change, best luck with that. Yeah, you're wasting your time yeah. um, as a leader. So one of the reasons for knowing and being aware of what's going on with culture is certainly to align with and understand it. But the other reason, and probably even more importantly, is to pick your battles and decide what's not worth my time and energy and resources to be able to do. And I think of like, you know, you work at uh, a college in higher education, Bonnie, that's a completely different culture than the business world. Yes. There are certain things that are never going to change as far as how if faculty interact with each other in a shared governance system at a university, mm-hmm. that's totally different from how you would interact like when you were an executive of a publicly traded company. That's mm-hmm. a very, very different culture. And so having awareness of that as a leader and looking at what is and is not going to change, particularly in strong cultures, is key to being able to help people learn. Those are some excellent points, Dave. I think you really hit it home with that. And so now we're going to spend the last few minutes talking about a couple of ways that we might categorize the type of culture we work in. Anytime we talk about categorizing people, or groups of people, we're kind of running into some dangerous waters because it can't be really this simple. Culture is incredibly complex, but a couple of authors have done their best job of here are four possible buckets of where we could place culture to think about that. And I cannot read the 
names from here. Yeah, this is from Goffey and Jones, 1998. And this is a uh, culture, uh, you know, how your cultural character looks. And this is just a, you know, a four kind of four lens way to look at it. We'll po- post this on the show notes. So again, the just uh, this is under show number let's see what number are we on here 13 so when you go on the website innovatelearning.com take a look at show number 13 and you'll see this graphic up there so there are two different dichotomies that their model has one is a high low dichotomy of solidarity and one is a high low dichotomy of sociability and so dave tell us about the high low solidarity what that definition is and then the high low sociability what that is Yeah, solidarity is the tendency to be like-minded with the people around you in your organization, and sociability is the tendency to be friendly to each other. So if you look at both of those those, uh, dichotomies, you get basically four different buckets. So you've got high sociability and low solidarity, high both, low both, and then vice versa. So we're going to just walk through these four categories quickly here. The first is high in solidarity, meaning that we value thinking alike. Mm -hmm. And it's high in sociability, meaning that we like to spend time with each other, celebrate successes. There's a lot of social interaction and enjoyment of that going on. This culture they characterize as networked. And the other way to look at that then is uh, assuming sociability is still high, as in people like to be friendly, but... They don't tend to necessarily be like-minded. That would be considered a communal culture. Mm-hmm. So we definitely enjoy our time together, but we're going to be probably having some pretty big debates in meetings about the ways to proceed. And there's going to be a lot more probably conflict, which could be really healthy going on, but we don't yeah. we don't value seeing eye to eye. So we might value actually having those different lenses, those different ways of approaching things. So that's going to be an incredibly different culture from networked, which would you'd be breaking a lot of rules if you went into a network culture and said, oh, no, 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 I don't think that's the way we should go in a very public way. They'd go, wait a minute, that's going against our norms. Exactly. Now, the other side of the scale and this graph is when sociability is low. So that means we don't really have a strong value to be necessarily friendly with each other. But if we are like-minded, then we call that a merc- the mercenary bucket, for lack of a better mm-hmm. term. So like-minded folks, but not necessarily really friendly with each other. Not that they're not friendly, but just that that's not something that's really valued and espoused in the organization. And Dave mentioned that I've worked in a number of different academic institutions. And I'll say that I see a lot of fragmented cultures in academic institutions. And that's, you know, researchers in general they're not molded to think the same way. In fact, they the whole purpose of higher education, many would say, is that it's about being a marketplace of ideas and that we want to be exposing people who are in higher education to lots of different ways of thinking. So we don't want them taught by all people from, for example, from one political party. You know, we want them to have mixed, diverse views. So the higher education field as a whole would tend to embrace very low solidarity based on the fact that these are researchers and the better you are as a researcher, the more you're pushing that envelope, the more you are exposing in that marketplace of ideas. And then it can really vary in my experience as to the sociability in various departments, and and that can vary considerably. But I have seen a number of academic departments in the years I've been in higher education pretty low sociability. I'll see you at the faculty meeting. But other than that, I'm doing my own thing, especially because I actually, Dave, are there more 
introverts also in higher ed? Did your research ever, did you look in that at all? Mm, I don't recall hearing that, so I'm not sure that I'd say that as a for sure thing. But in, in my experience, <laughs> anecdotally speaking, lots of introverts too. So not, I believe you it. know, not really wanting to get together and yeah. celebrate a whole bunch, that type of thing. And that, by the way, that is not an exclusive <laughs> comment. That's just, it's been a pattern that I've known, but certainly not a hundred percent. So with this model, these four things, the one thing to know is these four buckets, none of them are necessarily better or worse. They're better or worse depending on what the organization is trying to do. So Bonnie mentioned, you know, fragmentation in a lot of cases it serves higher education well, whereas networked might say serve a business more effectively, depending on the goals and the importance of those within the organization. So, so hopefully you found that model helpful. And again, that's going to be up on the show notes for episode number 13 here. So you can check that out with uh, more details. And we're going to be back next week with some more information on how to become more effective as a leader in coaching others and developing others. So I hope that this has been helpful for you as far as being able to get more tools to look at this through the lens of culture. And if you have comments or questions for us, you can reach us at 877-LEARN-45, or you can send email to feedback at innovatelearning.com. And if we can be helpful to you and your coaching skills, reach out to us as well, and we'll be uh, helpful in any way we can. Bonnie, thanks so much for being here. I'm so glad to have you back. Thanks for having me, Dave. And I look forward to talking with you again next Monday. Have a great week, everyone, and see you soon. 